brand is more important than it's ever been. Companies that grew up with passerby readers are dead. And if you don't have a consumer who's actively looking for your content, it is very difficult to build ancillary business models. If you look at what Snapchat's doing with advertising and storytelling, it's clear that digital can be more than the thing that we think it is. Welcome to the Digiday Podcast. I'm Brian Marcy, Editor-in-Chief of Digiday. Before we get to this week's episode, I want to tell you very briefly about a new podcast we have. It's called Starting Out. It is hosted by our co-executive editor, Shereen Patak. It basically looks at the careers of agency executives and how they got to where they are. It's a really good podcast. You should check it out. Search for it on uh, iTunes. It is called Starting Out. This week, I'm joined by Meredith Levy and the Chief Operating Officer of the New York Times. Meredith joined the Times in 2013. She was instrumental in the Times embracing native advertising with T-Brand Studios. And subsequently, she's been spearheading its shift to a direct consumer revenue model, which is a fancy way of saying relying on subs instead of the fickle advertising business. Is that fair, Meredith? That's one way to say it. <laughs> That's one way. That's my way of saying it. So let's get to the start, uh, the state of the Times. I think your last earnings report, it said 2.5 million digital-only subs. I believe that's the good news, yeah? Yeah. Um, First, thanks for having me, Brian. Um, It's really good to be here. Fun to see your cool offices in a cool neighborhood. Um, Yeah, we. I I think the more interesting thing from our last earnings call was um, our digital subs revenue number was larger than print advertising, and I think that's a real moment they're going in different directions they're going in different directions but but even just in in actual dollar terms the um total revenue from digital subscriptions was larger by a decent margin than the dollar figure from print advertising and that's a real moment for a company that you know a decade ago was in excess of a billion dollars of newspaper ad revenue and that being 80 90 percent of the revenue of the company okay so fast growing but the question always ends up being, when does it start to slow? Like, what is the number that you can get to? Is this my earnings call? <laughs> no, but no, that, that that it's a it's a fair question. So so be be more precise. Tell me what you want me to talk about there. Is what is the what's the addressable market for yeah. digital subscriptions to yeah. the New York Times? Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll say this, and you and I chatted about this a couple minutes ago. Um, we have, you know, three and change million total subscribers, uh, subscriptions for the New York Times. Um, we That makes us, I believe, the largest uh, pay model for journalism, at least in the Western world, in, in digital, um, probably in the world in digital. Uh, but what are the numbers we look at? We look at Spotify's 60 million. We look at, I think Netflix just crossed 110 million. And we see an opportunity to make that number much, much larger. And I would say in terms of commercial work going on at the New York Times, that's the most important commercial work we're doing, how to make that number mm-hmm. much, much larger. What are the going to be the drivers to get to those kind of very big numbers? Yeah. Um, well, you asked me about addressable market. What I'll say is there's only something like um, you know, 10, 12 million people in the United States who pay for news at all. So that's people who buy a newspaper yeah. or pay for a digital subscription. It's a tiny number. There's something, I, I never have the exact figure, but there are hundreds of millions of people who pay for entertainment. So a big part of the work 
is actually bending the curve on sentiment that high quality news is in fact different yeah. from everything else. But you're try you need to get that 12 million figure bigger rather than just try to take a bigger chunk that, that's of that right. 12 million number. That that's right. Okay. I, I get asked all the time is this, you know, you versus, you know, fill in the blank Washington news Post. subscription business, the Washington Post. There, you know, there are a number of others now launching sub businesses. We think that's a very good thing. We think a very strong and ascendant Washington Post is a good thing because the work is to, you know, bend sentiment in a category and to make the category much larger. And a big part of doing that is um, showing people and having them feel and sort of deeply understand the difference between the differentiation of, you know, original, independent, high quality journalism and everything else, letting people know there is a distinction and guiding them through feeling and making use of that distinction. So that's a big part of the Okay, work. so that's the consumer marketing part. That that's I would say that's actually the the way it's organized at the times to be technical about it that that's the work of our brand team. Okay, a lot of that is the work of um, how we coordinate between business and news. Um, there's a whole body of work mm -hmm. as well on understanding. You know, how do we go from 150 million members of our audience every month? So go back to your 3.3 million number, 2.5 in digital subs. It's a tiny percentage of our total audience who's actually paying for our product. So, so like under, like it's like what, under 2% are actually paying. Right. So, so a lot of the work is how do we create gravity in our conversion funnel um, so that people move through their relationship with the times such that they want to pay and stay. And you asked me a number of questions in the mm -hmm. beginning about churn and retention, and we can talk. Yeah, I want to get the churn, that. but I think the other, I would guess the other driver, because you talked about 10 yeah. to 12 million in the United States, is a lot of, I'm told, a lot of people live outside the United States. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. International um, is a big piece of this. I would Absolutely. guess. How, what percentage of your audience is international? So um, I think now it's 13, 14. So it's it's low teens. It's growing. It's growing at a slightly faster rate um, than the domestic audience. We put a lot of effort into it and frankly, still more to come. Um, I would say we have a lot of room. Um, we've, we've gotten much better at focusing our efforts internationally. We've gotten much better at investing internationally. We have a lot mm -hmm. of room. Um, to get better at how we execute internationally from a marketing perspective. We have a great team um, outside of the United States doing that that work. I think your real question is what's the addressable audience? I would say there are 300 million college-educated, English-speaking people outside the United so States. you have to build a global brand. I mean, you sort of you have a global I, brand. I would say we have a global brand. We have to convince people outside of the United States of the relevance of that global brand and its worthiness to be paid for. Um, and we're most likely, unless you're an expat, most likely we're not going to be your first read outside the United States. So we've got a very focused approach. We've been public about the markets that we're mm -hmm. in. Um, and we are working. Dipping your toes in Australia and, the, yeah. and that kind of thing. Yeah. Australia, Canada, the UK. I mean, you know, near in opportunity. I met one of your people in Japan. Oh, you did? I did. I'm yeah. actually headed there next week. Okay. I'll probably be meeting. Yeah, it was at our prison. Yeah. Um, so international, another big one. And I think the other one I want to talk about a little bit is you talked about news, like yeah. the market for news yeah. is, is constrained. So you've got cooking, you've yeah. got crossroads, yeah. crosswords. So they're not really technically news. I yeah. Mean, 
sort of. Not yeah, really. we've got a fair amount of things that are in news, um, and we think. Look, we we've. I'll go back to the answer I gave you before. A lot of the work is to sort of put gravity into the funnel by adding value to the experience um, a reader has on the New York Times or a viewer or a listener. And part of how we do that is by serving needs other than, serving daily needs that are other than news needs. So what's something you do every day besides want to pay attention to the news? You cook or you think about which family should eat. Um, you want to entertain yourself through games and so forth. So, so that's been a big part of the strategy. How much elasticity does the brand have in, in those in those softer areas, because the Times is 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 known for its its hard news coverage, yeah. and then look, it's always been hard news has always been supported by some of these softer things. There's a reason why everyone covers like fashion and autos in in, in previous era, um, because they were just looking for the ad dollars. Um, but how elastic is the brand to go into these areas that? Um, they just monetize easier yeah. than the news from Iraq and so I have I have a couple Trump. thoughts about that and I want to come back to the notion of all the running room that there is in hard news and in differentiation of quality original independent hard news mm -hmm. coverage from everything else because I do think I do think there is a great business to be had in that and I want to talk about that but on on the question of you know don't features make more money I think in general um, willingness to pay for things that help you improve your life is um, is proving out as a thesis in the digital world. So we pay for the things that um, become really important utilities and, and daily habits. And it's, I think you asked me about like how much elasticity is there in the brand. There's a real sense that um, lots and lots of people are very interested in hearing from the Times on what to cook. Lots and lots of people are very interested in hearing from the Times on how to direct their entertainment time, mm -hmm. right? So we've watching. Know, we've so so we've you know launched a body of work um, that we call watching, which is meant to help direct you to figure out what should I watch tonight, what should I be watching generally, what is everybody else watching? If there's something that I watch religiously, I'm a big. I was late to Thrones, but then I like binge watched the whole thing all at once. And we've got this incredible Thrones newsletter that like. You literally, if you care about the show, you can't not read it. So I, I think there are some number of spaces where the time still has a fair amount of running room in terms of developing service journalism, um, developing utility that combined with our content does something differentiated in, in a reader or user's life. Is the Times a lifestyle brand? Oh, it's so You've great. got a tote bag with the is. New York Times on it with you. I do. Those aren't for, actually, I shouldn't say, I was going to say those aren't for sale, but they might be in our store. We okay. just actually, <laughs> our head of brand who's on my team just did a, worked with a team to do a revamp in our store. So it might be. Um, yes, I, my answer to that is a resounding yes. I often talk inside the building about um, the fact that we are kind of unequivocally a, a world-class news brand, a world-class category defining news brand, journalism brand, and we are on a path to becoming a world-class consumer brand. And a lot of the work is learning how to behave like a world-class yeah. consumer and brand. And suddenly you're a divisive brand too. 
because, I'm not because sure the, that's so sudden. Because the president <laughs> uses. <laughs> I'm not sure that's so sudden. Well, I guess it's suddenly most, the whole world more, is paying attention. It's more, to the it's more overt yeah. when when yeah. you know the president is is tweeting about the lying New York Times. Yeah, and, and the whatnot. failing New York Times. So on that note, that's the keep down, it coming. The downside. The upside is the New York Times saw Trump bump. Right. I mean, you got your your subscriptions yeah. were growing. Um, no matter what, but they're, they were goosed a little bit because people, um, they're paying, they're more yeah. engaged with the news for better or for worse. Um, and also, um, I think you could argue that some people viewed actually taking it, it doing a subscription to the New York Times as some kind of civic duty. Like an act of, exactly. Yeah, it, it's a, it's like, uh, almost like a, a form of resistance. Or activism, right? Right. right. So is that, is that trailing off? So I'll, I'll go back to your word, goose. What, what I would say is um, the, the 45th president made the news become the news. And when the news is the news, people have a higher consciousness for the role that quality, original, independent journalism plays in society. That is very good for this broader problem that I've spoken to around making more people believe that news is something to be paid for. So I think that's been broadly good for business. I'll say two other things. Um, even before Trump, even before the election, we had seen a step function improvement in our ability to generate digital subscriptions. And we got that through behaving more like a consumer business and a consumer brand and really trying to understand customer journey, um, the behavior that a reader or listener or viewer has when they come to the Times and what actually makes them subscribe and then journey designing around that. So fundamentally, even before the election, if you went back and looked at earnings for the you know four, actually, I think you could probably go back eight quarters before the election, you would see kind of a, a curve of continuous improvement. And then indeed, we saw this step function mm -hmm. change because I think when the news becomes the news, willingness to pay and conversion <laughs> go up right. um, pretty dramatically. I do get asked all the time, do we assume that all those people fall off the file? You know? Not all, but I would guess or that, that large numbers of people. I would guess they would have a higher churn rate from people who did not come because of the election. Yes. So, so let me try. Are to you able to isolate them? By so, the way, the people that you think subscribe to you that are part of this Trump bump. We have a. We have a. We have a pretty keep good an, understanding. An eye on them. I mean, do they consume as much as a person who did not? Because um, I would guess, like product utilization, probably identifies like that your yeah. your, your churn risk. So, so let me let me answer the first question, which okay. is: Do we assume that churn goes up as um, as people get more used to Trump being in office, um, or just as we near a year a year of Trump being in office, or you know, comping against the election? Um, the first thing I'll say is that most people pay for the New York Times on a monthly basis, so we watch churn month over month over month. And in general, and we've said this on our earnings calls, part of the power in our numbers has been power in the positive results has been we're actually improving churn. So month over month over month over month, we are improving churn. And we're doing that because we're getting better at behaving like a consumer business and a modern consumer business and understanding how, and again, we are not perfect at this, but we are getting steadily better at onboarding people 
at understanding high-risk moments when somebody might leave the times that usually has to do with a lack of engagement. We are coming to understand the role that number of days visited plays um, versus your um, depth. So how deeply do you read in a topic, which is what I think you're getting yeah. at, and also how much variety Well, the do depth, you but also in? just the, the, the regularity. Like yeah. if, if someone is not using the product on a regular totally. basis. I mean, there, there's like the basic stuff that just... You just hope they don't pay attention with, to their credit card bills. Right. Well, so so maybe in the old world, that was the case. <laughs> in the good. new world, the work and is... Magazines were supported for years by, by hoping that, that people right. just didn't notice that kind of auto yearly renewal. charge. But the, you know, we've got a big... I think we have 250 people between our, uh, what we call consumer revenue, which is our, our um, part of our marketing organization mm-hmm. and brand. And they are incredibly focused on onboarding and priority moments in our relationship. And I, you know, I've said both, both Mark, I think I stole this phrase from Mark Thompson, but I believe it wholeheartedly that news is a relationship business. What the the fake news crisis, which we should also talk about, exposed was the importance of news being a relationship business, a relationship where the creator, the provider of the news is... Um, gets enough value from the mm-hmm. consumer that um, he or she can can keep providing that level of quality and for the consumer that the relationship value goes up over time. So right. we're getting better at that. Well, it, I'm sure it helps because I want to go back to 2013 when you joined because the Times had a different model in some ways. I mean, obviously subscriptions were part of it, but it was a big indirect model with advertising, particularly on the digital side. Right. right? And, and then there was the shift over to... Um, being a lot more consumer facing because yes yeah. you know. I do want to say I mean long before I got there there was a very brave that we're you know six and a half years into the pay model for journalism I got there four a right. little more than four years ago long before I got there some very brave decisions were made right. to the decisions were made launch but, like, a pay model. but how different is being that consumer facing organization I'm just like yeah. interested organizationally um, yeah, because I think one of the hardest things different. I always think of like media is you're serving like a bunch of different masters. You got to yeah. like keep advertisers happy, but you got to yeah. keep users happy. And- yeah. So it's very different. And what I will say is it has been a virtuous, um, and very culturally positive and galvanizing thing for the company. Oh, reporters like it. To say, for sure. we all like it. I mean, you know, I still look after the ad business. Yeah. We all like it. And, and I'll tell you what we like. Everyone wants to be, a, you know, there, there is no better or more sustainable business model on the planet than making a product that individual people love and want to pay money for. Mm-hmm. So to have that, I always say, you know, sum up the whole business model of the New York Times in five words, make something worth paying for. That is obviously you know, very positive if you're a journalist at the New York Times. That's obviously a part of what you want to do to be so valued that you're distinct from the free alternatives. Um, that is great for the consumer business because it's a galvanizing force to get that number from 3 million to 10 million and on beyond that. But it's good for the ad business because what do advertisers they want? They want to be associated with brands people love. They want to be associated with consumer products that are actually relevant. And they want deeply engaged audiences who are going to spend time on a platform and engage with their ads. So it, it you know, the notion of make something worth paying for has been this like centripetal mm-hmm. force to the whole organization. And a lot of people, you know, when, when we first announced, you know, subscription business first, it's a big kind of 
um, throttling of the business going back now to two and a half years um, when we published our path forward. A number of people said to me, I was pretty new looking after the consumer business then and had been running the ad business for quite a while. Aren't you going to disenfranchise your advertisers and your ad team? And said, no way on the advertisers because they want to be associated with all the things I just said. And for the ad team, there's no better, more differentiated thing to go to market with Mm -hmm. than we're a brand and a a product that individual, millions of individual people love and engage with. Yeah, I mean, well, you could also argue at that time was when sort of the race for scale like it when it, it seemed over. like it's it was over. falling apart it's like, over because google and like facebook won mashable laying people off buzzfeed everyone, saying we're missing you know and, everyone and on lost. and on and on everyone lost yeah. because like yes. you cannot compete with google and facebook on scale and you've said you've said something i'm gonna bring up your quote yeah go for it you you had said that anyone that's not google and facebook is destined to be a niche advertising business so I think when I said it in my mind, I had this notion that like niche could Depends be a, 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 a big word. Yeah. You know, a number it's of people like, said to me afterwards, at a trillion niche dollars. means tiny. You know, uh, yeah. you know I, in the, here's, here's what I really meant by that. The New York Times future depends on being a large, a very large paying consumer business. And we are betting the commercial future on our ability to do that through the differentiation of our journalism, through the differentiation of our quality mm-hmm. in every space that we play. So in. it seems like and that, we, that's the right. point I the, was making. The ad business, I expect over time, will be smaller than the It is today smaller than the right. consumer business. And we, we are not, um, I was also making the point that we, because we don't have to chase scale, because we are not, you know, we don't have to have a billion or two billion or three billion dollar ad business. By the way, I'm very happy to have one. Sure. Very happy to have one. But because that's not a requirement of the model, I think we make a better product. I think our journalists never have to choose between quality or how to direct your attention. One of the best things about the New York mm-hmm. Times, this was a huge learning for me when I got there, is like we don't move audience around in support of advertising. You know, we move audience around to direct people's attention to the things that matter. And that is like, like, I do not know too many other places that have an ad business that can mm-hmm. run that way. So I talked about serving two masters of the user, um, the yeah. reader, and then also uh, the advertiser. But nowadays there's the third party, which is the platforms. How yeah. does this direction as a, one, as as probably the preeminent news brand, two, then as one who's taking its future on consumer revenue, how does that change the New York Times relationship with Facebook and Google yeah. in particular. So I'll say we have very important relationships with Facebook and Google. Um, and those relationships are literally in every part of our business. So, you know, I always say <laughs> we talk about the duopoly, like we spend a lot of money with Facebook and Google. We're a marketer. We have a consumer business. We spend a lot, you know, for us, we spend a lot of money through the whole funnel and marketing, we spend a lot of that money with Facebook and Google because it works. So we understand them and believe in them as a platform to help grow our subscription business. They also, you know, Google is a very big advertiser with the New York Times. We just, this week actually, are running a really cool um, promotion for Google Home with our subscription business, which was a partnership both on the sub side and the ad side. So there's all sorts of opportunities with both companies that we believe strongly in. So, are we getting so, to the butt part? 
Well, let me say a second thing before. <laughs> okay. let, let me. You, you, I have let, interested. Let, in let me say a second thing. I I do think like not enough gets said about this stuff. So the the second thing I want to say is they are changing consumer behavior, especially Facebook. You know, like a billion people at a time. So format experimentation like facebook live was a really hard thing for us to do but it was really necessary format experimentation and were it not for them saying you know we're gonna we're gonna give you money to program on our platform we wouldn't have done it we wouldn't have done it as fast Mm -hmm. we would have done it differently so there there's great value in that i think that the verdict is out on the question you're asking me which is um what will you know how will the subscription business broadly in the world go in terms of their role in it um, for many, many publishers? Facebook hates let, subscriptions. Let me, let me get this out. We have said publicly, um, we're today the best business we have is the direct-to-consumer business where news is a relationship business and we own that relationship. We've said very publicly today that is – you know, we, we, we see that as the most lucrative business and frankly a foundation underpinning to the whole business. So as we navigate um, what to do with those companies, when to do it, how to do it, whether to do it, we think first about um, our direct relationship with our users. Do you think philosophically they're changing from being, and I, I, I would lump Facebook and Google in this, philosophically they're changing from being anti-paywall, quote-unquote paywall subscription businesses because, look, it's in their interest for the people that were preaching that all content has to be free on the internet were the yeah. people that were making money off of all content being free on the internet. Completely. And all that money was being made by Google and Facebook. And now they have such scale and they have such power they're starting to make, we saw last click, first uh, click first free, click free yeah. go. I mean, that's a major and important and positive thing. But it took until now. Yep. Uh, Facebook is experimenting with driving subs and IA, and you guys are sitting out. Here, here's what I'll say. When the news becomes the news, everyone's consciousness is raised to the importance of high-quality journalism. And I actually think, you know, I think newspapers, it's funny, when I was leaving Forbes a little more than four years ago to go work at the Times, people would say, you're going to work for a newspaper. Like, wow, you know, isn't that the most <laughs> embattled industry on the planet? And I would like bristle when, when we were called a newspaper and I would stand in green rooms my first year and like tell reporters, like, don't say newspaper when you go out on the stage. But I think some of the best journalism done in the last decade has been done by the New York Times and the Washington Post and frankly, other newspapers in the last year. So high quality news Mm -hmm. organizations to the extent newspaper means that people get now that you have to have commitment and resources and expertise. And I would say you have to have a consumer brand that people trust um, to be in that business. And my sense is that the platforms Mm -hmm. um, understand that as well. I can't speak for them. I don't know. I mean, like I, I was, I was in Kent, and Mark Thompson was actually very candid. I feel like about the shortcomings of the platforms yeah. when it came to taking responsibility for the fake news that uh, that yeah. they were not the fake. Well, news, I like mean, Trump. just read the news, uh, and now they like, clearly, that's... they clearly were responsible. They clearly dragged their feet with it. They want the yeah. upsides without the responsibilities. I understand wanting that. Yeah, um, but. How would you describe your relationship? It seems like you're saying, obviously, it's complicated. It's, it's multi-sided. It's hard. The answers, um, I, I think you should take and hear a lot from 
at present the the best shot the New York Times has for sustaining its business, which means its quality, its quality journalism for the long haul is direct relationships. And you can pull it off because you're, you're the many, New York Times. many, many, many users, and that is the business we are in, and we have been firm about that. Your so, future is not staked on Facebook or Google. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> you had to verbalize. <laughs> <laughs> it's very and important on the podcast. <laughs> and, you know, part, part of what I'm saying, one of the other things that's, that's been um, really interesting to me in my you know four years at the Times it's like how fast the world can change right? and how fast sentiment can change and how fast people's interest in things can change. And we are going hard at um, captaining our own destiny, which is probably mm-hmm. the best answer I can give you to the question. Okay. Just it's going to be very interesting next year because I think there's going to be a lot of pressure on regulation of ad targeting. Because, I agree with you. But, uh, w- and when, it's under talked about. But when, I think it's GDPR, but it's also when Google and Facebook get hauled yeah. in front of oh, Congress. Yeah. I can't wait. We were taking bets earlier about who in like ad tech is going to be called to like a congressional hearing yeah. to like explain custom audiences and retargeting and stuff like yeah. this. Um, no matter what, whether it's just in political ads, there's gonna be there's gonna be regulation coming. I think, and I think it's gonna alter um, Google and Facebook. Maybe they're prepared for it. I don't know. I, I want to say I agree with that, and I think it is going to further alter the digital ad landscape, and I think to very positive effect. So you know, I think that swamp. I always, I still talk about the Lumascape. I've had a little Lumascape in like every speech I've ever given. You know, for however long it's been around. Terry will be thrilled. Um, yes, I see Terry on the wall right behind <laughs> me. But, but, but the, the point is, like, we are finally getting rid of everybody in the middle. And that, that keeps, I keep going back to this point is it is about a direct relationship. And that's also between advertisers and the entities whose content they want to travel with or be associated with. Okay. So um, no pivot to video for the New York Times is that a question or a comment? <laughs> Here, here's what I want to say. I think for us, um, the report video as a mechanism, you know, Dean McKay always says we wouldn't be able to do the journalism we're doing right now if we didn't have as much of it take the form of sight, sound, and motion as it does. Right. And we still need to be doing much more of that. I would say no no hard pivot to... Not getting rid of text be- people to... to- and no hard pivot to like being in the video ad business, yeah. And, and which is what I think everybody's really talking about when they say pivot to video. Like we all know, there's still massive demand for high CPM pre-roll sure. advertising. Um, we, you know, we're making more of it than we used to, but we are really trying to calibrate um, what's video's role in the report. How do we make the best report? on the planet so every time you come all day long you're getting highly differentiated information and that's the bet we're making in video so i just want to spend a little bit of time on the ad business because you still sell ads we do Uh, and we're we're very happy to and it's growing yes and we as i said we're happy to have a multi-billion dollar ad business so when you came one of the you started t-brand studios there um, I did. And yes. that was at the time, you know, everyone was sort of piling into native. Yes. Um, and I always say we were late, but we were better. <laughs> yeah. And the New York Times was late. It's better to be better than late. early. It was controversial yeah. back then. Yeah. Um, and now T-Brand Studio is, it's, it's a large agency-like entity. Yeah. 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 How many people? 
I don't even know that we like can cite a T brand number. Okay. We've got about 150 people in advertising at the New York Times who are creators and makers who make things, who work on. How has its role work. changed? Yeah, it's really changed. And I would say in the last year in particular, it's really changed. Our go to market in advertising used to be, you know, we can sell your branded content. <laughs> Let's trot out the T brand studio people. And now, I, and we're you know, just at the beginning of this. We have media, um, and a lot of people buy media from us. And mm-hmm. That's you know impressions. That that's things that that's native advertising into which you might put branded content or um, your ad campaign. Um, we have partnerships, so where we um, bring something cool to the world and have a marketer play a role in that. So. Lots of examples of that this year. BMW kind of famously um, helped us bring the daily to life earlier because they um, funded us pulling it forward on a roadmap. Um, Samsung has been an awesome partner in doing 360 video daily in our apps. It's been a really great partnership. Um, We launched a a, um, fellowship um, like a, a way basically to hire new journalists um, with Avea this week. So so we, we have a pretty big and growing partnerships business where we're bringing, you know, totally editorially independent things to the world, but we're doing that in concert with marketers and helping marketers achieve objectives with it. And then we have a services business. And I would say if, if, if T-Brand Studio had an offspring, it's the services business. T-Brand Studio is now essentially a creative and production shop serving all three of those businesses. The services business is where marketers are hiring us for um, projects and engagements that don't necessarily have media and don't necessarily have something that launches on the New York Times. Is that a, is that a big opportunity? Because I mean, I would get the I margins are, are are lower there. I Definitely, mean, media lower margins margin. are are, are yeah. better than. Than, than services. No doubt. Um, what we I have a pyramid that I drew. I think I drew it like at midnight the night before our sales meeting, where I you know, see them at the top of the period pyramid and like media planners and agencies, like somewhere toward the bottom of the pyramid. And like what the services business allows us to do is to actually go in and have the highest level conversation with the person who controls the most dollars and those dollars don't just that's the thing they get excited about yeah but it's it's not even that i mean there's a practical aspect of it which is so much i was on the phone with a cmo this morning who literally said we're putting so much more money into our owned assets you know being in the services business we acquired fake love and experiential design agency we acquired hello society a social programming agency we've built out something we call agency services which is where we we go out and we build content strategies we have a product called story mining where we literally advise on content strategy and all of that doesn't have to compete for rp dollars or media dollars it can compete for other dollars and often the output ends us ends up putting us in a situation where we then get media dollars or we are then able to compete for partnerships. Okay, it usually includes dollars. media, though, or no? I mean, it, it often does. I would say when you get to Fake Love Hello Society and our, our story mining product, less so. Right, but it doesn't so. it doesn't start with media dollars because I think a lot of uh, the difference not. of content studios, a lot of times it starts with media dollars and then yeah. it's just adding production into, yep. into but, a media But buyer. T-Brand, you asked what happened to T-Brand? Yeah. You know, four years in, T-Brand is now the creative and production shop essentially for the whole enterprise. But we've got this very specific go to market, which is we can sell you media, 
in automated or direct ways, we can build a big partnership together, bring something new to the world together, or make something better that didn't exist before, or we can um, we can serve you mm-hmm. with an array of services that are usually about your own assets. Are you still a believer in VR? I've always wondered if, if VR you know, is going I'll to. I'll tell you what I'm a believer in, and I said this from the... Um, I'm not very bullish on VR. Well, so, so here's what I'm bullish. I'm bullish on... Um, all of the technology that breaks the form factor constraint of storytelling. So like before VR, before AR, before AI, we distributed stories like a reporter's, um, you know, take on something because that's what we could distribute. And I'm really bullish on things that bring people into the native experience itself. And I think VR was the first of those things. I think it will absolutely have some application for us it was such a big and important thing because it it got us thinking about the distribution of high quality journalism experiences and what does journalism mean when you're actually bringing a person into the refugee crisis or into um, you know the war in Iraq or Afghanistan. I mean, it's, it's a fundamentally different thing. I will tell you, it's been very successful. From, All right, so from, not pulling back on. Let me let me say let me get this out. It's it's made money. I mean, we're we are helping companies figure out in the services side of our business what to do in VR. And I think it's interesting. I think it'll look, I think yeah. AR will have much broader application yeah. and we're also doing a fair amount of But a lot of VR work there. from my standpoint, a lot of early VR work, not just for the Times or other it was subsidized by by Samsung, by Google course um in order to you know they understand in order to get people to do it they got to pay for people to do it but those those dollars they always go away they always go away after usually after a year year and a half and then people are left to fend for themselves and maybe they get like a deal with an advertiser because it's new but then if you come back with a really small audience and really totally impact totally. audience, they're gonna be like sorry totally but here here's what we learned from it again consumer business first subscription business first brand people love we sent those million units of Google Cardboard to people's homes mm-hmm. and like the world went wild. <laughs> so, you know, people like our, our users are, you know, MYT VR still has a big audience. It still has long engagement times. Um, your, your consumers want you to bring them along for the, like, what's the frontier of how I'm going to do yeah. the next thing. And we learned a big lesson in that. I mean, look, it's the daily was a big, I mean, the daily has been like the most successful thing we've done in that shorter window of time in years. That was a big experiment. We didn't know how mm-hmm. that was going to work out. Can you make much money off podcasting? I'm asking for a friend. Is that, do you, <laughs> <laughs> was that, was that do you or can you? <laughs> uh, can you? I'm guessing you don't now. I, but. well, I'll, I'll say like the daily is a real hit. Yeah, no, no. It's a real it's hit. It's a real hit. I listen to it. You know, I listen. I always, listen to it. I don't listen I don't, to daily, but I listen to it. Mostly. I listen to all of them. I don't listen to them every day. I okay. listen in packs when I run, but, um, it's a real hit. And what it's one of the things that um, just to you know, bring you inside our process a little bit, it's, it's really opened our eyes to the power of a hit and what made it so many things made it a hit. Lisa Tobin, the executive producer, you know, we, hi- we went outside and hired a badass expert who knows how to do this, who came into the times and had no preconceived notions about what the New York times should sound like. That's am- like, if we'd given it to somebody who was already in the building, I'm not sure anyone else could have pulled that off. 
Michael Barbaro, like we found exact and like stroke of luck or Lisa's brilliance, you know, we put exactly the guy whose voice you want in your mm-hmm. ears on really difficult or funny or important topics. And then the other thing, um, A.G. Sulzberger, our, um, our uh, deputy publisher, said this funny thing to me, something like when they brought him the first like cut of the daily he was like, oh, but they're going to move the headlines to the top of the show, right? <laughs> like, and of course they didn't. And like, that's the yeah. best thing. It's a single story. And then just before the end of the show, every morning it says, so what else do you need to know today? Mm-hmm. So like for us, it was this, re- it was like VR in that it was like break what we think the form factor. And it humanizes are. the times. I, ah, I think as like a, you, yes. you get more consumer facing, yes. you Sa- start Sam to hear. Dolnick, Sam Dolnick, who was the head of, um, like editorial ventures and innovation in the newsroom. And he's got this quality of he's like been there for every important innovation we've done in the last five years. He says, you know, that like with the daily, we came down from the mountain and we were like speaking in human language and we were um, talking in a way that people could relate to. And you know what, when you've got headphones in your ears, you you have to, you do, you do. So final, final thing. And then I promise I'll let you go. Um, I also in can Mark Thompson called digital advertising a nightmarish joke. Um, I was very happy. I don't to think be I there. was there when he said that, but I, I can tell you my phone instantly blew up. I was like, you know, you go to like a thousand <laughs> sessions of can and nothing interesting is said. And then I was like, I happen to go to one where I want you to pause and think how lucky I am to work every day with someone who's that interesting. And he is that funny and interesting in meetings. Is, at is, the office too. is that fair? And is that a, a symptom of a, a broken, a broken system where most where most publishers look it's it's up to them how they how they treat their users but the way the system is set up right now and the amount of commoditization that's gone on to the advertising industry it has led to this experience that it, it is a nightmarish joke depending on the site you 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 land on and your your tolerance for pain yeah what i would say is we hold firm to the notion that advertising as we knew it as something that was fundamentally interruptive and standing in the way of whatever it is you're trying to do, those days are um, waning. (laughs) And marketers need to figure out how to do either high quality programming or create products or experiences that actually give value to people. And I think that's what he was getting at. That doesn't mean there won't be campaign advertising. Of course there will. We're still going to need to build brands, but respecting people's time respecting their privacy, respecting their data, and going back to that notion of this is a relationship business. So the marketer having a relationship with the content creator for whom the audience is coming is really important. Okay. Meredith, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Lots of fun. And thank you all for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode. 